Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. You know, long ago, there ruled in Persia a wise and a good king. And he loved his people, and he wanted to know how they lived, how they really lived. And so he wanted to know about their hardships in that. And so often he would dress in the clothes of a working man or a beggar, and he would go to the homes of the poor. And no one whom he visited thought that he was their ruler. Couldn't be. One time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar, and he ate uh, the leftover scraps of food that this poor man ate, ate with him, and he... He spoke cheerful, kind words to him, and then he left, and later he visited the poor man again, and he disclosed his identity by saying, I am your king. And the king thought the man, in response, was surely going to ask for some kind of gift or a favor or something, but he didn't. Instead, he said, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate the food that I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. And to others, you have given your rich gifts. To me, you have given yourself. End quote. That pictures what Jesus is about. Condescending, coming down from heaven, His throne, His glory, where He had always been with the Father and the Spirit, and He comes down to man to give us Himself, to give us His best, and the more you think about that, we sang about that today, I want you to just come away with the idea, just give me Jesus. Give me more of Jesus. I, I'm hoping in our study, I'm going to pray in a moment, that our time together in the Gospel of Mark is going to lead to your falling in love again with your Lord and Savior in a new, fresh way, more so than you ever have before. Amen? Let's pray about that. Lord, we... Thank you for the opportunity to come back into one of the Gospels and follow your life closely. Observe, take in the beauty of your walk, your words, your life, your love, your sacrifice as the servant of God, as the servant of the Father in the form of the Son of God. Teach us, Lord, to just appreciate you more, love you more, get to know you more in the weeks ahead, Lord. And that as a result we will walk and talk more like you. So, if there was ever a time that our country, that the world needed to see Christ in us, it is now, Lord. I pray you'll make that so in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to find Jesus all over the place here as we begin this new series. We're doing this book for the first time at CCC. So, I'm going to give you a little survey, a little background of this, so you can better understand this better together with me. The author of the book, as you imagine, you know the name, but he was a young man with Jewish roots, and he would go by the Jewish name John, but his Gentile name was Mark, so his name became almost hyphenated that way as John Mark. And he wrote this gospel by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the middle of the first century, probably some point between 50 and 60 A.D., the first time we hear of him 
He's the son of a woman named Mary, whose house was being used as a place for believers and to gather and pray in Jerusalem as the church was forming. Then later he's mentioned as a companion of Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, during their first missionary journey. That's in Acts 12. And it just so happens, John Mark happens to be the cousin of Barnabas. And we know from these scriptures that this young man was a helper. For a time, he was a very important, he was a, he was a faithful servant to these two leaders when they traveled. And, but then in Acts 15, something happened. Paul tells us he and Barnabas separated. They actually had a conflict over whether or not to take John Mark on the next missionary journey, on the next trip. Barnabas wanted to take Mark, and Paul didn't, because he had deserted them when they were supposed to travel through some cities and towns on the way back to Jerusalem after the first trip. So John Mark took off. We don't know why. He walked away. So they split up his teams for a while. Barnabas took John Mark to Cyprus. Paul took Silas with him to Syria to strengthen the churches. And we don't hear from John Mark for a good while. And then we know he did repent, and he reconciled with Paul because the apostle mentions him as a fellow worker in Philemon and in 2 Timothy. What we know of what happened before that was that Mark was not an apostle, he was not a preacher, he was not a pastor. He did go on to become a very close friend and companion of an apostle, the apostle Peter. They had a history together. They traveled closely, we think, during their ministry, particularly in Judea. I think Mark went with them to Rome, where Peter was eventually martyred for the faith. And it was there that Mark wrote this gospel. I think he followed Peter around wherever he went. Most scholars believe that Mark, in essence, was a secretary writing what Peter is sharing with him as they're walking and talking along the way. Peter talked, Mark wrote it down. We have a good idea Mark wrote this book in Rome because the style and the language, you're going to see something different. It's very quick. Very hard-hitting. It's tailor-made for Gentiles, Greek or Roman readers. It's kind of fast-paced like a newspaper account. He reports things happening very fast. I think that culture liked it. I think that might have been a social media-friendly empire way back when. And sure enough, this is the shortest of the four Gospels. And you're going to notice the word immediately used over and over again in describing the action. Look at verse 10. At the baptism of Jesus, he came out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending. Verse 12, just giving you a taste. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. That happens about 40 plus times in this gospel. The word immediately. He wants people to hang in there and see how things are happening. It's fast-paced. And he also, he doesn't include a lot of things that would be of normal interest to Jewish readers. This is the gospel where you don't find any of the Christmas story. There's no genealogies. You have very little of Christ's controversies with the scribes and the Pharisees. There are less references to the Old Testament in this gospel than the other ones. Which what we're going to do is we'll go to the other gospels in this series and we'll fill in the gaps And we're going to harmonize the life of the Lord with all of that. But Mark is going to take us through events quickly. What he does in this very missional book 
is he's emphasizing Christ as the suffering servant. If you had a key verse in this whole gospel, it would be chapter 10. You've heard it many times before. Talking about Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Right? Mark focuses more on the works of Jesus, less on the words. And I think it's important then you have this background in mind so you keep up. And so you really see where we're going in this series, which starts with an introduction, a prologue. The very first verse gives us really the title of it. So we're going to look at this gospel prophecy that's here, and then a preparation. Let's look at the prophecy. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's more important than you think, that first verse, that introduction. Evangelion, Greek word for gospel. That would have more than one meaning to somebody reading this first verse in the first century. To a Greek, the word would mean a reward for something good, good tidings. Or it would mean good news. And in the literal sense, if a Gentile, like a Roman or a Greek, they heard or read about good news of a coming one, they would normally understand that as a celebration and a welcome home of a king, a conquering king, a victorious governor, a military leader returning as a conquering hero. Think about Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar. That would come to their mind. For us who are Christians on this side of the cross that we're on, the term evangel is different. We think of it as the preaching, the sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ. He's the one that suffered death on the cross to forgive sins, give us eternal salvation, entry into the King of God, kingdom of God. He's resurrected to life, exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. He's going to return in majesty to consummate the kingdom of God. On the other side of the cross, though, back then, at the time John is preaching and baptizing, and the Lord Jesus is just coming on the scene. He hasn't yet atoned for sins. He hasn't yet risen. The word gospel for a Jew at that time would have a slightly nuanced, different meaning. They would take it as the kingdom of God soon to be set up by the next David, the Messiah, Meshach, the chosen one, the anointed one, coming to Jerusalem because he's the founder of that kingdom. Therefore, Mark puts the name in the office of the king coming together here. Jesu Christu. Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, the God who saves, Christ. Let me remind even our younger ones here. We're tempted to hear Jesus Christ. We think he's Mr. Christ. Christ is his last name. Not so. Christ is a title, his office. It means the chosen one, the anointed. It would be the Gentile way of saying Messiah. And... We go to the gospel prophecy about this Messiah then with none other than John the Baptist. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger, that's going to be John, before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Where does that come from? You see that's in quotes in your Bible? Mark is quoting from the Greek Old Testament in the book of Exodus and two Old Testament prophets. He's talking about Malachi, and the most evangelistic of all the prophets, Isaiah. And he's showing that this coming 
was always part of God's plan. He would send a messenger first. Malachi is the last book in your Old Testament. And he's the prophet here that prophesied of this great preacher to come as the one who prepares the way for the Lord to come to his people. In fact, Jesus quoted from Malachi in Matthew 11 when he said this about the messenger. Listen to this. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus basically saying the greatest guy of all time is John the Baptist. Certainly the greatest prophet. And the Lord added that he would fulfill the prophecy of the New Testament Elijah to come. That's interesting. Luke's Gospel, it says there, and he, John, will go before him, Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So that was John's mission, but he's not Elijah per se. He's a kind of Elijah, okay? So gospel prophecy is really gospel preparation here. And what's interesting, in John's gospel, is the news that Jews sent priests, they sent Levites to question the Baptist about what he was doing. And I want to show you what it says in John's version of this, chapter 1, in the middle of verse 20. He said, I am not the Christ. When they asked him, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? The prophet, capital P, like Christ? He said, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am just the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. There's Isaiah again. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John is not Elijah reincarnated, but he was like him as being the greatest human prophet of all. Now, what Mark does, like Paul will do, and other Bible writers did, is paraphrase, kind of combine, condense more than one prophecy from the Old Testament into one. This is how it reads in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Listen to that. A highway for our God. The deity of Christ is in this. Because he's referring to the way of the Lord, Yahweh, and a highway for God. And Mark is saying that's the way of Jesus Christ that's coming. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So the idea is for this messenger, John the Baptist, he's like a town crier. He's a herald. Make the path straight for the victorious king. In fact, the New Living translates it this way. The Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This is what a messenger like, did, like this did at that time. Go before the conquering king and have the road cleared so that the king and his procession could move through the road. Think of today, if you want an analogy, the Secret Service agents that go before the president in the, in the car, right? And they clear the way. Make sure the path is clear. For them to travel. How does John do this? The same way that we have to, when we preach from the pulpit, and on occasion that you have to, when you present the gospel to someone, maybe even a child in your own home, listen to the Baptist in Matthew's account. 
in chapter 3, verse 7, but he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Yikes. John is calling these religious hypocrites to confess and repent of their self-righteousness. It's not an easy grace message, is it? He said, bear fruits of repentance, meaning prove you've changed your mind about your sin in God. You know, it's been said Charles Spurgeon was the one who first preached about turn or burn. I think it was John the Baptist who was first in this age. And if Spurgeon was the prince of preachers, I think John was the prince of prophets. Someone once called him God's bulldozer. He wasn't too subtle. It's a good nickname. In fact, he lost his head for it. He called out Herod to repent for his sexual sin. And Herod had him executed. John had a very specific, special ministry. He was what we would call today a street preacher. No megaphone, no microphone, just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He would not tell people what they wanted to hear. He would tell them what they needed to hear. That's often the job of a preacher. And so John the Baptist was the bridge, really, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's a prophet, and he's a preparer of what is to come. So we move from the gospel prophecy here to the gospel preparation. That's in verses 4 to 8. It starts, verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He's preaching here. Now, let me give you a little background on here so you get this. The Jews at that time were not baptized by and large. Greek or Jewish converts to Judaism would be baptized as a symbol of their having been unclean, now they're being cleansed or washed to join that faith. So the word has that meaning of cleansing. But it also could mean, the word we translate there as baptism, as to dip somebody repeatedly or to immerse them under the water. It was used as a metaphor to talk about a ship that would be sinking. So the baptism has the idea of cleansing here, because it fits the context. What it was, was a symbol or a sign for people to show God themselves, their community, that they were Repenting of their sin in getting ready, getting ready to meet their Messiah and have their sins forgiven. You need to see that. They're not having their sins forgiven here. This is not believer's baptism because the full gospel news hasn't even, the events haven't happened yet, hasn't been preached yet. Salvation has not yet been provided. The baptism did not forgive their sins in itself. And it didn't bring them any grace from God in and of itself, any more than Roman Catholics can bring salvation to babies when they baptize them. Biblical baptism does not save anyone, babies or adults. It just symbolizes or pictures the salvation that has been professed to have already taken place in the heart of a believer. You with me on that? That's very important. Now, where does that start? How does the process of salvation start that you'll then symbolize in baptism? It's about preparation. Repentance. Repentance. Mark likes that word. 
And it's good that He does. We need to hear more of it. To repent is to change your mind literally. It's a change of direction from your old way in thinking where you're going. And so you turn from that. You make a turn. You make a commitment to turn from sin. And you make a turn to God. To follow Him. To obey Him. And to seek His righteousness. You used to love your sin when you repent, you grow to hate your sin. It's literally a change of mind that results, listen, in a change of behavior. I think we have the PowerPoint slide up here. You know how about a caterpillar? Caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Well, the word for that, as you see that diagram, is called metamorphosis. Meta, that prefix, means change. Morphosis is form. It's a change of form. Well, the Greek word for repentance is very close. Metanoia. Meta, change. Noia, mind. It is a change of thinking that will lead to a change in your life. You got that? You go from loving sin to loving Christ, just as that caterpillar transforms. This is where salvation begins, people. It's about repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus began His preaching ministry. Skip down to verse 14 in the text. It says, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What's that? And saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Matthew 4, the apostle wrote of the launch of the Lord's ministry, and he said, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is the first word of the gospel. Remember that. The kingdom of God in heaven is synonymous. The way you get into it, to be a citizen of the kingdom, under the rule and reign of God, King Jesus, is by repentance and belief or faith. You turn away from sin to God and trust in Jesus for who He is and what He's done. So even though repentance and faith, listen, are two different words, they're like two sides of the same salvation coin. You need to have them both in order to be justified. Paul made sure he told the Ephesian elders that when he was preaching in Acts 20. Very familiar text, very important. He said, that he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, listen, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They're both side by side. That's important. Today, some Christian preachers and teachers, they misinterpret the idea of repentance they try to separate these words because the Apostle John in his Gospel emphasizes the word believe there. doesn't use the word repent. talks about believing. And so people then take that to mean, well, repentance maybe comes after you believe and you have faith. And then at some point when you mature as a Christian in discipleship, you'll make Jesus your Lord at some point. That would be wrong. Very wrong. Because at the very beginning of this gospel, you see that both John the Baptist and Jesus are telling us, repentance, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. First word in the gospel. You need to be 
repentant to be saved by God. In fact, when you study the word even for believe in the Greek, it is synonymous with the words trust and faith. And when you place your faith in something or someone, it's connecting as the object of your repentance. You have to turn from something to something or to someone. That's belief and trust. But you've made a turn from. So you see repentance and faith go together. They're two separate words. The gospel always treats them. The Bible treats them side by side. So to believe means you consider something or someone to be true, worthy of your trust, worthy of the direction you're now going to go in, in your repentance. Repentance and faith says this in essence. I'm sorry, God, for my sin, and I'm so done with it, I want you and your mercy and your grace more than my sin. So, The gospel preparation goes on. Look at verse 5 in the text. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, meaning the Baptist, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When the verse says all the country of Jerusalem and Judea, that's a little bit of hyperbole, exaggeration on, on, on the truth. It doesn't mean every single person that lived in Judea went and got baptized. It means that a whole bunch of people from all over the place went to the Jordan to be baptized, and to confess their sins. They were baptized in repentance because they were confessing their sins, which means to agree with God about their sins before Him. We talked about that in our last series a little bit. You can't, you can't turn from Christ, you can't turn from, God, from sin to Christ unless you agree you're a sinner to begin with. Okay? You've got to be able to tell God That you're turning from something to turn to Him. So, in getting ready for the coming Messiah, then Mark gives us a little more insight into this one that's preparing the Gospel, John the Baptist. Verse 6 is interesting. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Sounds yummy. Okay, John the Baptist was a different kind of guy. No tunic for him. Why? Because he lived in the wilderness. That's the desert. He would need something warm to wear in the wintertime. That's where those furs would come into play. And he needed to eat and wear whatever he could to get by. Locusts, by the way, you may find this interesting. I did find this out. They were kosher for Jews in the Old Testament law. You could actually, it was like a good thing to eat locusts. Just not be attacked by them. And by the way, you would find lots of those in the desert. And interestingly enough, the outfit that he's wearing came to resemble a certain other Old Testament prophet. Who do you think that might be? Elijah. The point is this. John is counter-cultural. He's not a popular guy in his community, outside of his own followers and those of Christ. But still, people were going out to see him. He wasn't making house calls. He wasn't visiting people. He lived in the desert. John's not the kind of preacher that would get a lot of invitations to preach at church growth conferences today. I don't think. His preaching was more hellfire, brimstone, as the old-time Baptists would say. John the Baptist may have been the first Southern Baptist. I don't know. But this may be necessary for you and me to do at some time, and which is preach hard truth. But even in doing that, I want you to see how humble he is in verse 7. And he preached 
After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He's talking about Christ, the Messiah, who's greater, more powerful than him. In John 3, he goes on to say, he must decrease, John would decrease, so he, Christ, must increase. Here's an indication of that. John is humbling himself and acknowledging who he is before the Lord with this analogy of a slave. Do you know about the lowest thing you could do would be to kneel down and tie and untie somebody's dirt-crusted, infested sandals at that time? In fact, the Jews wouldn't even do it themselves. If they could afford a Greek slave to do it, they would do it. And John's saying, that's me, and I'm not even worthy... I'm not even worthy to untie his boot, his sandal straps. Amazing. Finally, verse 8. I have baptized you with water. Listen, this is very important. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Great analogy from John in preparing people for the gospel by pointing to the greater one the coming Messiah, what he's saying, he's linking repentance and faith in Christ to metamorphosis, to life change. He's moving from the external symbolism of baptism to an internal baptism that takes place. There's a greater one coming with a greater baptism is what he's saying. Okay, the difference is between external, internal. John's baptism, again, was an outward sign of repentance which is a change of heart, whereas the baptism of Jesus with the Holy Spirit produces that internal change in the heart. Matthew in his Gospel adds, the Christ will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Why does he use fire? Fire in those days was a purifying agent of metals that would remove the dirt and the impurities at high temperatures off the metal. The Holy Spirit has that power to cleanse you of your dirt, if you will, your filth. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I love the way the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel put it. Listen to Ezekiel 36 again. Now in this context, you'll really even get it better. Ezekiel, the Lord tells him, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to remove a heart of stone from your body, and I'm going to give you a heart that's of flesh, meaning your heart's going to be living and breathing now. And I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul even said in 1 Corinthians, the moment that you're born again, you're baptized into the body, one body. That means the universal church, the body of Jesus Christ. So that's union with Christ, union with other believers, all right? So we're crucified with Christ and we're resurrected with Christ. We come together with Christ. So in effect, you're baptized in Christ. You following? That's good news. That's gospel news. So as I close, I'm just going to tell you something. This gospel of Mark and this text is just the beginning, folks, of the Christian faith. The repentance with faith, is just the beginning of your life as a Christian, which God even gives that repentance as a gift of His grace, because we need that as a gift in order to repent and be saved. 
2 Timothy 2. But this change of heart really should become a pattern of thinking for you. should be a lifestyle for us. And we need God's help to pull this off. We cannot do this on our own. I'm talking to you as a Christian now. You can't just like turn a new leaf. It's a work in our hearts that God, fueled by the Spirit of God, works in us. Your sins have to be killed every day. Some of our brothers were on a group text this week and we were talking about this same idea. How do you kill, or in the old language, how do you mortify your sins? Because you know what? There is a problem of leftover sin for the Christian. There is. The life of every believer. When we were in the book of Romans, I called it our tug of war with the flesh, the remaining sin. I'm going to give you a picture of this that may help. Imagine repentance as someone that's walking in one direction. They suddenly realize they're walking in the wrong direction. They stop and they immediately go the other way. Okay? That's quick. That's simple. You realize, you stop, you turn. Now, imagine you're on a bicycle and you're going in the wrong direction in one sense. Yes, you realize it. It's obvious. You stop, you turn around, you begin to ride in the new direction, but sometimes it's a longer process. process. Maybe there's a light in the intersection. Maybe somebody's in front of you. I go through this all the time when I ride my bike, and it's a slower turn. And the time and distance required to make that turn is longer than the person walking. Now imagine you're piloting a super tanker. It takes miles to slow the ship, I found out. Just slow enough to be able to start to make a turn. The turn itself is immense. It's going to take you a while. And it's even longer while to get going in the new direction in full speed. So now, you have these three pictures. Apply that to your repentance. As a Christian, right? Some sins are like you're walking. Quick change, new direction. You stop, you walk the other way. Some sins, like the bicycle, you know which ones they are, are a little more difficult, a little harder to stop and make the turn. And God's work with us believers, He takes a little time to bring you to that awareness and the course of action being a sinful one. Then there's the process of coming to a stop and the turn, getting up to speed and faith. And then some sins, like the super tanker, are huge. Sometimes you don't even know you're sinning for a while. And they may be habits that are so deeply ingrained in you that you're not willing at first to even recognize them as, as sin. You haven't even stopped the ship yet. But God works patiently with us. Carefully slows us down. He's like our captain. And what he does is he brings us to a full stop so we can turn and go in a new direction. Then we can get up to full speed. Do you get that? There are two things that are important in this picture I'm giving you. This is what I'm trying to get across to you. First, the fact that God does not work repentance in us overnight, but over time. Second, and before we even get to the second, you have to have that awareness of sin, the desire to change, for this change to start to happen gradually. So he might bring you to a full stop sometimes, slowly, carefully. And you may slip and fall sometimes on the way to that point. Secondly, that has to do with the turn. The turn is repentance. 
And in the picture of the ship that I mentioned, there's a long time where the ship isn't moving. It feels like it's going to be dead in the water. And it hasn't turned. That may be your life at a certain point as a Christian. There are going to be times that you think you're making little progress in your walk. You're dead in the water. At that point, we ask God for help. And you know what? The turn will start to speed up gradually. Godliness will grow as God patiently works with us. Listen, I've learned this. I've learned this lesson about our God over the years, being in the Word. God loves process. God does very few things fast, particularly with people. He works very, very slowly with most of us. That's hard, isn't it? I'm just being real. I hate process. I'm not a fan. And that's why when God's working with me, it's always a process. Because He knows that's what I need. And I got to have to make the turn and get up to full speed. One more thing, and we're done. John the Baptist's life is an example of us to take our lives as Christians seriously, and the gospel seriously, and your call to ministry, whatever that might be, like John, he spent his life just introducing people to Jesus Christ, he focused on the mission God gave him, as a servant of God, he was not afraid of speaking the truth, even when it meant going against the culture of the times, remember Jeremiah, who I mentioned earlier, we have to follow his example, amen, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this introduction to this wonderful gospel and the good news. There is a prophecy, a prediction of it, preparation for it. And that's repentance for the Christian in the room. Lord, may we admit our sin, confess it, and want to begin to make that full stop and turn, turn back to you as we cry out to you for grace and mercy and the filling and leading of the Holy Spirit to keep in step and walk with the Spirit so we would not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Help us to do that, Lord. And for the person watching today online or here who may not even know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they're not sure, wow, today would be a great day to make that turn, to be prepared for the second coming of Christ, to do that by admitting, confessing, Someone here is a sinner, a rebel that's broken your law and aware of the punishment for it, which is damnation. That person needs forgiveness of sins, salvation from judgment to come. May such a person today or more, Lord, make that turn to you away from sin, a life pattern, a lifestyle of sin, and trust in Christ, Christ alone by faith, believing in Him as the God-man who died on the cross to make the payment, take the penalty on Him for our sins, for their sins. May they do that today, Lord, and let us know that they did so we can help them understand better what they've done and why it matters. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to begin to look at Your Gospel, the Gospel of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, God's people said, amen.
Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 